Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of James. The sermon text will be on verses 26 to 27. I'm actually going to be reading verses 19 to 27 just to give us a little better sense of the context. Give your careful attention. This is God's word. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, this is the word of God. This is the word that you have disclosed to your people. And we acknowledge, Lord, that your word would make no sense to us in our natural state. It is spiritually discerned. And so we ask now that your spirit would move among us and plant these words deeply within our heart that they would take root and bear the fruit of eternal life, that they would bear the fruit of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. This year marks the 100th anniversary of J. Gresham Machen's classic work entitled Christianity and Liberalism. It is a book you ought to have on your shelf if you do not. As the title indicates, Machen's thesis is that Christianity and theological liberalism are two separate separate things. They are not two forms of one religion. They are two different religions. The liberal rejection of the supernatural and its skeptical opinion of the Bible's historicity render it completely alien from the Christian faith that has been passed down from us from the pen of the apostles under the inspiration of the Spirit. In his book, Machen characterized the difference between the proclamation of theological liberalism and that of Christianity in this way. He says, here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood, while Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative. Liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. 
Machen goes on to write, the early Christians, to the astonishment of their neighbors, lived a strange new kind of life, a life of honesty, of purity, of unselfishness. But how was the life produced? It might conceivably have been produced by exhortation. That method had often been tried in the ancient world in a Hellenistic age. There were many wandering preachers who told men how they ought to live. But such exhortation proved to be powerless. The strange thing about Christianity was that it adopted an entirely different method. It transformed the lives of men, not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story. Not by exhortation, but by the narration of an event. Machen confronted a theological cancer which was fed by a modernist philosophy. And this philosophy attempted to drive a wedge between the gospel activity of God called the indicative and the life we are called to live called the imperative. It taught that these two could be separated and thought of independently from one another. That doctrine and life were two separate things that could be legitimately separated and held in isolation from one another. Sadly, even well-intentioned evangelicals are not immune from the lure of this unhappy wedge In the interest of pursuing practical applications, one might unwittingly slip into this. And symptomatic of this problem is the treatment of the Bible's commands, its imperatives, as isolated wisdom without consideration for context or connection to the work of God. And though we might say the effort is a noble one to take our Christian faith seriously, to put meat on the bones, to walk the walk... Yet this approach can attempt to stimulate faithful Christian living by harvesting biblical applications that have little direct connection to the new life the gospel offers and requires. It therefore bears little necessary relation to Christ and falls prey to what Machen identified as powerless exhortation. The book of James is an easy target for such a trap. It has been characterized as largely a practical book reflecting the pithy wisdom sayings of Proverbs. And while that connection is not entirely unwarranted, one should step carefully around that observation. James begins his epistle by carefully and forcefully drawing the reader into the realm of what he calls the perfect. Four times in chapter 1, the perfect is mentioned. It is a reference to that end-time heavenly horizon, that end of the Christian journey when, according to chapter 4, we will be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, or in the words of the great hymn, when our faith shall be sight. James exhorts us to view the trials of this world, though these are painful and unpleasant. He exhorts us to view the trials of this world as a source of joy because the Lord uses those to form endurance in us, the very endurance we need to get to that finish line, to enter the realm of the perfect and to have the blessing of the crown of life. 
And even though we are surrounded by trials, verse 17 reminds us that God even now is continually showering us with good gifts from above, from the realm of the perfect, these gifts coming down. The realm of the perfect, the realm of heaven is so real and so relevant to us that James uses it to characterize the church's identity. He refers to the church as exiles. As long as you are in this world, you are away from home. And so while this brings doctrinal depth to our hearing, it does so with necessary life implications. You will not find an introduction like this in James in the book of Proverbs. Something very new and profound has occurred in the coming of Christ. We can't ignore that. We can't relegate James to the old covenant. This impacts even the way we look at our duty before God. How we act and who we are in Christ are inseparable. And so James has oriented our attention to the perfect And as he has done that, he now closes out this chapter with an example of what life with an eye to the perfect does not mean and what it does mean. Negatively, verse 26 focuses on speech. Reflecting again upon the concern raised in verses 19 and 20, a concern that will be further developed in chapter 3, we must control our tongue. And recall how in verse 20 we were told we were compelled to consider the way we listen and the the way we speak. And it was not based first and foremost on the damage our sinful speech does. He will cover that in chapter 3. But in chapter 1, the even higher consideration was this, that our new birth in Christ obligates us to conform our life to the righteousness of God. That's the standard. James envelops our speech in the standard of heaven itself. And of particular importance and an important implication of this is that this exhortation is not being written to mankind in general. If you do not know Christ, then James is not speaking directly to you now. James is addressing his exhortation to you who carry the name of Christ and are considered exiles in this world. These these duties, these commands, these obligations, they are lofty. They are demanding. In fact, they push us beyond even those shadowy demands of Sinai under Moses. And these demands, though lofty, are also prophetic. Because they place before us the anticipation of the end of our journey. When we will be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. This extraordinary life we are called to is not a test we are to pass in order to prove our worth or to gain something from the Lord. Rather, our obedience is part of that reward we will enjoy fully when we are no longer exiles in this world. And so, as citizens of the the above, we are called to begin harvesting that life now. Harvest heaven's obedience now, even while in exile. 
And we are to do this by making proper use of the good and perfect gifts that God is showering upon us. And so the Christian perspective is not that we are to become obedient in order to be good. It is not that we are to become something in order to be something. Rather, we are commanded to be what we have already become in the new birth in Christ. And therein lies the inseparable connection between indicative and imperative, between gospel and command, between doctrine and life. The religious man with an uncontrolled tongue is said to be a deceived man. The word religious here is used to capture the external expression of worship. James is speaking to someone who is engaged in religious activity, a churchgoer. You look at him and you see all the trappings of what you'd see could be a legitimate uh, uh, Christian life, but he will not control his tongue. And Christ reminds us in Matthew 12 that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so the way we speak, the way we conduct our language says a lot about our heart. And so James says this man's religious external service is a deception. In chapter 3, we will find the uncontrolled tongue is prone to boasting, vulgarity, anger, bitter, bitterness, and the very poisonous practice of gossip and slander. You see, the external practice of religion saves no one. And if you are a citizen of the perfect, then such speech betrays your Savior, it betrays your heavenly identity, and it should have no place in you. If one considers himself religious yet does not control his tongue, James says his religion is worthless. And it is interesting to note here that the Greek word used here for worthless is the very same word the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 of our faith if Christ has not been raised. It is vain. It is powerless. It is worthless. The uncontrolled tongue is the fruit of one acting more hearer than doer. The uncontrolled tongue is not something found in the realm of the perfect. And according to James 3.14, is not from the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And our Lord reminds us in Matthew 12 that we will give account at the judgment for every careless word. How we speak matters. And where we are situated matters. We are citizens of the perfect. But then James moves on. He moves on to give a positive example. In contrast to the deceitfulness of a worthless religion, James now gives a positive expression of that which reflects the good and perfect gift coming down from above. And simply put, it is to visit the orphan and widows in their distress. And certainly sitting underneath this are principles extending beyond the widow and the orphan. This is a specific application of the more general need to care for one another. 
But what is it about the orphan and the widow that brings special attention to their situation? And how does this special attention reflect the righteousness which Uh, the righteousness of God, which is so central to the gospel. How does it reflect the realm of the perfect? Well, the Bible recognizes that both orphan and widow are tragic victims of a fallen world. Death wields the Lord's judgment, attacking and destroying indiscriminately. It attacks that which was originally created as good, Death steals away mother and father, leaving an orphan. It seizes upon the blessed union between husband and wife, leaving a widow. And the loneliness of Adam, once addressed by God through Eve before the fall, is now intensified and becomes part of the common curse. And in the place of that lost loved one now is companionship with isolation, with fear, with danger. In the Old Testament, the orphan and widow are grouped among those who lack the means of protection and provision. They are exposed, they are vulnerable to the abuses of a fallen world, and they are unable to remedy their situation. And yet it is their vulnerability and their helplessness, I would suggest to you, that renders this condition especially appropriate for the intervention of God's gospel compassion. For all who come to the Lord in faith must come with empty hands, acknowledging guilt and acknowledging need. You see, we are all born into this world as spiritual orphans and widows. And the Bible tells us that God, according to his loving kindness, cares for the humble and the helpless And he applies this especially to the orphan and the widow. We read earlier together from Psalm 68. And there in verse 5 it says that God is a father to the fatherless and a judge for the widow in his holy habitation. And it is striking that his care here is presented in a manner that would suggest his covenantal presence in some sense remedies the loss. He is a father to the fatherless so that in some sense the child is no longer an orphan. He is a judge or advocate for the widow so that in some sense the woman without her husband is in some sense no longer without protective care and provision. And of particular note here is that God is not presented in this psalm is one seated down here, scurrying about trying to deal with some crisis. Rather, he's enthroned in heaven, in his holy habitation, from the place of his eternal repose. And there, we are told, it is from there that he projects his care downward. That is to say, the Lord is not becoming a father to the fatherless or an advocate for the widow through some extraordinary act on his part. He's not reacting to some situation that has caught him by surprise. His his interest in the orphan and the widow is an eternal aspect of his nature. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord is compassionate not because he cares for the widow and the orphan, but he cares for the widow and the orphan because he is eternally compassionate.
Your situation has not caught him by surprise. It has not forced him to extend himself beyond what he always is. God's attributes and his actions, his doctrine and his life are inseparable. God always does what God is. Eternally, unchangeably. And so God from his heavenly throne above cares for the orphan and the widow as a joyful expression of his own divine perfections. You can think of it like one dazzling radiant beam among countless eternally emanating from his incomprehensible glory. It is a consequence of who he is, who he eternally is. And so you will note in James 1.27, in the context of the orphan, God is referred to as father. And as God chose Israel to be his son, so Israel is called to reflect their divine father in the care for his needy ones. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. God's care is to be reflected in his people. The Emmanuel promise, God taking up residence in his people so that we can then enjoy, be drawn into the very life of God, reflecting it. You see, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength necessarily means you are to express the heart of the Lord. Recall that encounter Jesus had with Peter in his resurrection. Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, is now being restored three times with the question, Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. Feed my sheep. Embrace my heart. I have given it to you. Isaiah will go on to say in chapter 1, verse 23, Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. And so the Lord declares, I will turn my hand against you. Israel was a poor reflection of her father in heaven. And Jesus characterized them by quoting from Isaiah 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Their tongue was full of deceit, for their heart was far from God. They were engaged in worship, don't misunderstand. They were devoted to religious sacrifices. They attended the feast. They never missed Sabbath worship. And yet the Lord, through Isaiah, called their worship a trampling of his courts. They were illegitimate children caught in deception. They were pursuing something other than Christ. But then God sent his true and eternal son into the world. With bridled tongue, he spoke not as the Pharisees, but as one who had authority His words were not careless, but carried the wisdom from above. Not only did he speak the truth of the word of God, he was the word of God incarnate. Certainly, certainly, 
he would reflect God's care for the needy. And so the heart of God is reflected in Christ's confrontation with the religious leaders. Beware of the scribes. These who walk like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses. These will receive greater condemnation. Christ is an advocate for the widow and the needy among his people, but he does so in the context of the gospel. He creates no wedge between doctrine and life. The Son of Man came not only to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ's ransom, Christ's service, gospel doctrine, gospel life. But with the coming of Christ, there is also an unexpected aspect. For Christ's coming created a crisis. It created a crisis that would shake the family. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For in one family there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father. Christ's coming brings with it a sort of division. It is a sword that sets father against son. It's as if Jesus' coming was intended to create fatherless ones. It's as if his coming was intended to disrupt marriages once equally yoked, but no longer so. And so in the crisis of the Lord's coming, we find a tearing away of child and spouse, seemingly creating in this world more orphans and more widows. But in fact, what Jesus came to do was to recreate He came to reconstitute. He came to resurrect. Jesus came to inaugurate a new age out of which was born a new family. A family now joined in eternal fellowship to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Peter pointed out the crisis of Jesus' coming. He said to the Lord, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. We have separated ourselves from family and fortune. We have left the peace and comfort of home. And Jesus responded, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and sister and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The new creation that Jesus brings brings with it a new family. And so we read in John 19 there that, uh, that eyewitness account of Jesus' dying moments. 
And there the Savior speaks from the cross to his mother regarding the Apostle John. He says, woman, behold your son. And he speaks to John regarding Mary. And he says, behold your mother. They're united now. Part of the new family in Christ. This is what life looks like in the perfect. This is the heavenly reality. And so Jesus will say, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Think of that through gospel faith. We are eternally related to our Savior, our brother. And as those who share in faith union with Christ, so our relationship to one another is oriented around our relationship to Christ. And we find among ourselves... We are brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters. You're part of a big family. There is a presumption in Scripture that the need to care for one's family is universally understood, even among unbelievers. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, 8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers know you care for your own. James will touch on Christian care and compassion more in chapter 2. And there he will write, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? In our own situation, in a world that is becoming increasingly isolated, we need to be mindful that isolation is a dangerous environment for a child of God in a fallen world. And to say to the one who is alone, be warm, be filled, I'm praying for you. And yet never extending to them genuine fellowship. What good is that? How does that reflect the realm of the perfect? Can you see how the new reality of the new family in Christ informs and compels our care For the orphan, the widow among us, who seemingly have no family. Can you see how this brings hopeful comfort to those among us who may be isolated and alone? And as the sanctifying work of the Spirit presses us into the life of the perfect, as we have now become members of one another in the Lord, can you see how this makes demands upon your life. Demands which are prophetic, pointing to the realm of the perfect, where there will be no orphan, no widow, and no lonely. You see, the realm of the perfect is demanding, even though unfolded in grace. Do you long for that day Christ has already begun to shower you from above. Live out of it. As Christ prepared his disciples for his departure back to the Father, he reminded them in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. And so he has. Through his spirit descending from above upon his people. Christ will not leave us as orphans for he sends himself to us. And through his spirit the heart of Christ is replicated in each of us. That we may not leave one another as orphans, widows, isolated and alone. That we, like Christ, may be mindful of those in our family, alienated by the curses of a fallen world. It is our new nature. It is who we now are. And out of that work of God, the Lord commands, do not neglect the orphan. Do not neglect the widow. Do not neglect the isolated. Do not neglect the lonely. Do not neglect the needy. I have lavished my spirit upon you. Now embrace my heart. The lofty call to guard our tongue and to care for the orphan and the widow is not a call to become good by being good. It is a call to be what you have already become in Christ. Doctrine and life, inseparable. And as Christ dwells in each of us and we in him, so I close centering you on the Savior. The Lord reminds us at the end of Matthew 25 that because of our mystical union with Christ, to the extent that you served one of his needy ones, you served him. Seated under the genuine care for our brothers and sisters is the deeper reality that we through that are engaged in a profound and spiritual caring for and fellowship with our Savior Jesus Christ. This is pure and undefiled religion. Let's pray. Father, you have so richly blessed us in Christ. What a wonderful salvation and a glorious Savior we indeed have. We cherish his life, his death, his resurrection. And we bless you for your grace, which extends to us through the sanctifying work of your spirit, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of the one who rescued us when we were spiritual orphans, spiritual widows. But now we know you as our loving father. And we know Christ as as the beloved husband of his bride, the church. And so we ask that you would grant us the grace to appropriate the blessing of the Spirit, that Christ's life might be evident on our own, that we might not dwell in the isolation of sin and judgment, but we might know the joy of eternal fellowship with you among the church triumphant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.